my name's John. I've never had this honor of sharing up here before. So I just want to say thanks. Thanks, Mark, and just thanks all the leadership or worship team. Thanks for leading us there tonight and just all that goodness. Um, but it is such a joy to be able to share. And uh, I don't know if you looked at the email or heard or whatever it is, but I have the joy of going through Romans tonight in Romans chapter 6. Um, but before we go there, I wanted to read a... Uh, an obscure passage from the last book of the Bible. Um, And it's from Revelation chapter 19. And it's this vision of heaven opening up, and there's this man on a horse. And he says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. That's his name, faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, from his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress, the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this crazy heavenly warrior, right, on this white horse, um, which is just a rare horse, and, and he's going out to do war. But where is the sword? It's not in his hand. It's from his mouth. And there's, there's a lot of other verses, and there's a famous one in Hebrews where we read that the word of God, it, it's like a sword, and it's living and active, and it and it cuts, and it's sharper than, than any sword. And it, it can even cut the really, really intricate parts of, of like bone and marrow. It can separate it. And, and man, I just believe that Romans is full of examples of where it, the word is like a sword that just cuts. And what's good about this warrior, this, this heavenly warrior is he fights for goodness. And he's not out to just be a tyrant and to make everyone bow before him, but he's actually so good that everyone just will bow before him when they really see him. And, man, like Romans chapter 6, what we get to read tonight, like, is just chock full of them. Um, And it's a privilege. So I'm excited. But if you don't know me, my name's John, and... um, Sorry, what was your name? Sarah. Sarah. So what Sarah's going off to do, YWAM, DTS, when I was 18, I actually felt God call me to do that. When I was in my home country of America, I, was, I grew up in Colorado, and I felt called to go do DTS in Newcastle, Australia. I thought it would be about six months, and five years later, I live in Australia, and I'm married to an Australian, so have fun. Good luck. <laughs> um, 
It's a fun time. How many people have done DTS or YWAM in here? That's a, that's a lot. Wow. That's so many. <laughs> um, but yeah, have fun. Uh, yeah, so when I, I did DTS and leaving, I, I um, had a great time. I went to Europe for a bit, and that's where I felt God kind of lead me on to the next thing. And it happened to be this Bible school with YWAM again. It's called SBS, or School of Biblical Studies. And I got to study for about nine months, and I just loved it up in the Sunshine Coast. And I loved it so much, I thought, man, I'll just stick around for two years. And they didn't kick me out. I just stuck around. Um, now they actually asked me to staff, and it was really fun. But while I was there, I got to meet a beautiful girl named Taylor. And uh, I was her staff. She's my student. <laughs> I'm only three weeks older than her, so don't worry. Um, and I waited I waited till she graduated. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, we, we like each other. And, uh, and that, that's how I, I got to come to this church. She's been coming here for a bit, but I'm pretty new here. So if I haven't met you, my name's John. Um, like Joel, met you tonight. You're good, man. Good job on the slides. Doing great. Yeah. Well, cool. Romans 6? Romans 6? Hopefully there'll be some more jokes along. Um, I think the Bible's funny. Like, there's some funny stuff in there. There's a prophet that has to, like, lay on his side for, like, ever, and he has to eat food cooked over, like, poo. That's funny. <laughs> there's Romans. This is serious. Well, it's seriously good news, too. And, um... Gospel, do you guys know what gospel means? It, it, it means good news. Um, as as uh, one guy I like to listen to, he says, it's not a bummer, it's good news. And um, I believe that, man. And like, I think the times in my life where I've realized how good the news is, it's directly influenced how I live and the fruit and all that stuff. And and I was able to take my eyes off of trying to do good stuff, and I was just like blown away by how good the gospel is, that's where I find, whoa, I got to evangelize like crazy this week, and I didn't, wasn't really trying. You're like, whoa, God, I got up and preached in front of like 500 people, and I wasn't even nervous. Like, like God does stuff, I think, when we aren't seeking um, the stuff. When we seek him, a lot of stuff happens, and it's really fun. Um, all right, so Romans 6. The verses I got asked to, to share on is uh, 1 to, to 14. Um, so please open your phone or um, your, your memorized Bible in your head. If you have that, that's really cool. Um, or just the old Bible. I'm reading from ESV, so... If yours is different, it's not because I'm a heretic. I don't know. It's different. <laughs> it's all good, though. All right, so what shall we say then? This is verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, or some versions say our old man, it's not talking about your dad, um, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What? Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So I stopped there, but do you know that originally, when this was written, they wouldn't have stopped there, nor would they have started there. This is a letter, right? So how many of you, if you were sent an email, would you open up, scroll three-fourths of the way down, read three sentences, close your email, and then maybe a month later, go back to it, open it up, and do another random three sentences? Anyone? All right, but who would read their Bible, where they just randomly kind of flip open to a page, and be like, oh, I'm going to read this chapter today? My hand's up there too, guys. But the Bible is actually written not to us, but for us. And, and it was written originally to other people that lived long ago. In this specific letter, it was written to um, Christians in Rome, um, probably around the year 56, 57 B.C. So that's about 20 or so years after the cross, right? 80, not BC, sorry. Thank you. Yeah, that'd be interesting. <laughs> Paul is very prophetic. Um, AD, which doesn't stand for after death. Um, something Latin for in the year of our Lord. <laughs> I don't know. Um, anyway, so what would happen? Well, the author, Paul, he's in prison, right? He used to be able to move around and preach whenever he wanted, and he actually did, and he was pretty good at it. 
if you read the book of Acts, he went like so many places. And if we read the, the end of Romans, he actually kind of has like this really cool list where he's like, I've been here to there. I've been this place to that one, and I've preached the gospel. And it's like, dang, like to actually pull out a map and look what he did. And it's like, there's no like four-wheelers back then. There is no trains. There's no planes. Like this guy walked. Maybe he had a donkey or a horse one day. He sailed a bit. When he did, he kind of got shipwrecked a few times. Like, it's crazy. Like, I mean, I've gotten to do more miles than him. Um, but that's on a plane. That's on a plane. So it doesn't really count. Um, but yeah, he gets put in prison, right? And, um, and he, yeah, like he's just all over the place, putting up churches, in prison, all over the place. Um, but he's preaching the gospel, and he, he's free, and people, we think that he's probably in Corinth around this time. He's, he's probably preaching around the Corinthian church this time, and he has this desire to go a bit northwest. He wants to go to Rome. And we read about that in this letter, and he's like, hey, I haven't been able to make it to you guys yet. But he feels compelled to write them a letter. And why am I sharing this? Why am I not talking about these amazing verses? Well, could you imagine, like, jumping into one of the best movies ever, like, right at the finale? Like, what if you'd never seen Lord of the Rings, and it's like you just tune in to, like, the last 20 minutes? Or... Like, I really like the movie Braveheart. And it's like, what if you only watch, like, the last 10 minutes? And it's like, okay, you could maybe get an impact there. But, like, if you were to really watch it from the beginning and sit in it, it's like, dang, that's a good movie. And my conviction is with the Bible and with Romans is, like, man, if you actually were to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and, and we went on, like, you would really feel it. And so I, I hope. I hope that we can get the best out of these 14 verses that we can. But, but man, you, you do a disservice to it if you don't really enjoy it for what it is. Um, but Paul, a lot of people have different ideas or thoughts of why he's writing this letter. Um, but the, the kind of idea that, that I've read about and kind of what I sit in is that there's this church that actually wasn't set up by an apostle, but they encountered the gospel on the day of Pentecost. So Acts chapter 2 and 4, around there. They're at Pentecost. They hear the gospel, and they actually are visitors from Rome, and they take the gospel up to Rome. And they start preaching and all that stuff, but there's no apostle that we know of that sets up a church there. But somehow the gospel goes. Well, if people were visiting in Pentecost at that day, they were probably Jews because Gentiles weren't really celebrating Pentecost at the time. So they're Jewish Romans that go up there. And if we follow the story of Acts, it's actually a bit later on in the story that Gentiles, non-Jews, get invited into the family of God, that people realize, oh, this isn't just for Jews. This is actually for everybody. And so there's a little bit of time where they're just preaching to Jews. So what scholars kind of think 
is that the Roman church started as a small Jewish Roman church. But then from history we see, and from the Bible actually, in, in Acts we, we see there's two people. Um, there's this couple, um, a lot of the ladies, they like this woman named Priscilla. And, uh, or Priscilla or Aquila? Which one's the girl? Priscilla, yeah. Priscilla and Aquila, uh, this couple. And they're in Corinth, and they're really cool. You can read about it in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 17. And they actually are kicked out of Rome because of this Caesar named Claudius. And Claudius, he basically just said, hey, Jews, get out of here. Pretty racist. But all Jews had to leave Rome. And so what scholars think is that the, the church that was Roman, they just got kicked out. Even though they're Christians, they're still physically Jews, so they have to leave. So imagine you, this congregation, you just get kicked out by the South Australian government, and you have to leave. But the building's still here, and there's really sweet instruments and all that stuff, right? And so while you guys are gone, there's a new church that comes in here, and they start doing church. But Maybe five years later or so, the, the government says, all right, you guys are allowed back in, and you, Allgate, or Hills Baptist, you guys come back to this church, and you find, oh, there's a bunch of flipping YWAMers in here. Because <laughs> YWAMers like free accommodation. <laughs> but then there's kind of this power struggle, because the YWAMers are like, well, hey, We've been here for about five years, and we kind of like it. We don't want to leave. But Mark's like, well, <laughs> sorry, um, this is our place. And they're like, eh, we don't want to leave. Who would be in charge? And so scholars think this is kind of what happened to the Roman church, that the Jewish church, they got kicked out of Rome. And while they were gone, Gentile Christians came to Rome, and they started preaching the gospel. But then we see in history that Nero, this Caesar, he actually says, all right, Jews, you're allowed back in. And so all these Jews, they're allowed back in, and it looks like there's a bit of tension. Hey, who do we listen to as pastor? Whose theology is a bit better? Like, I don't know. Like, have you ever been in a situation where there's leadership that's kind of contested? Like, who's the boss here? Like, What's going on? Who do I listen to? Anyone? Um, well, I would imagine it's a bit weird like that. And I think, in a lot of scholarship, we think that's the situation that's gone on here in the Church of Rome, that there's kind of this power struggle, and it's actually to do with race. And it's Jew versus Gentile. And so if you were to take that bit of knowledge, and you went and you reread all of Romans you'd actually see there's times where Paul, the author, he'll be like, hey, I'm going to talk to you who know the law. But then he'll talk, and he'll talk to, like, the Gentiles. And he just goes back and forth. And Romans has some cool, cool stuff in there. Some people are like, wow, this thing's packed full of theology. Some people are like, man, this is just Paul kind of just showing off. Like, he's just, like, trying to write, like, the coolest stuff ever about Jesus. But 
I actually think Paul's not really being like a theologian. I think he's being a pastor. And what he has is a church that's in disunity. And what he's doing is he's writing really sweet and beautiful truth to bring about unity. And so my kind of view is that everything in the book of Romans is actually meant to lead this church to hospitality and to unity and brotherly love and just grace with each other. Um, There's this really funny verse in Romans. I like funny verses, right? Um, But just before I read it, real quick, who believes the Bible is the Word of God? Who believes you're meant to do what the Bible says? All right, and who's Christian? How come none of you kissed me when I walked up here? (laughs) Where's my kiss? Oh, no. (laughs) It's coming. (laughs) But yeah, no, if you don't believe me, Romans 16, 16, it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So you're all sinners. Like, (laughs) what's that? Oh, well, Romans 6 might disagree, actually. Oh, oh. Controversial. <laughs> no, it's pretty crazy. But um, yeah, where's my kiss? Right. Well, we got to read the Bible in its context, right? And I find there's actually a lot of things in Romans that maybe get taken out of context. And man, if you were to really do it justice and sit in it, it like it actually makes heaps of sense. And one of the things that's kind of confusing is. Um, the Bible actually never originally had chapters and verses. So like Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, verse 10. Like all of that is a pretty new invention. Like three, 400 years ago, people have put that in. And it doesn't change the verses or anything. It's just a way that we can kind of categorize things and better do that. Um, but I think sometimes we read it as like, oh, I read my chapter for the day. But it's like sometimes they break it up in like the middle of a sentence. And so I say all that because Romans 6 actually starts, it's kind of clause B of a thought. And there's already been a big clause A in the previous chapter, 5. I wish we could go through it all, so I have to do it briefly. But Romans 1 opens up and Paul kind of verse... 1 to 10, he, it's kind of like small talk. He prays for them, and he, he says, hey, I've heard about your faith and all this stuff, and, and I'm excited. And, and he says, I, I haven't been able to meet you, but I, I want to. And, and he says, I want to do that because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Do you guys know that verse, famous one, chapter 1? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the, it's the power of God for salvation for all who believe, right? And, but at the end of chapter 1, he kind of starts this big argument. And um, I've heard this. I was, trying to, I was trying to fact check this today, and I couldn't find it. So hopefully it's true. But I've heard said that Romans actually has been taught in a lot of law schools um, to help study, like, a good legal case. Because Paul, he actually unpacks a very, very complex train of thought. And he moves through these progressions of different arguments and clauses. And I was trying to fact check it today. If I did a bit more research, maybe I could 
find out a bit better. But, but I can see that. There are some complex things that he goes through, and, and it's cool because it's actually kind of simple sometimes to read it. But his big argument in chapter 1 is that humanity has an issue, and we, we call it sin, right? But what it is, is he says that they, they chose not to glorify God, but rather they glorified and they worshiped created things rather than the creator. And they suppressed the truth by their ungodliness. So have you ever been to like the beach or the, the pool and you, you have like a, a ball and you try to put it under the water? And it's like, it always pops up, right? And it's like, no matter what, like a thing's going to pop up. And I think Paul, he's like, hey, you try to suppress the truth with ungodliness, but and truth is always going to pop out. Um, and he says, because of this, the wrath of God is revealed. And, and something I find interesting is that Paul, what he says the wrath of God is, is a little bit different to what my thinking was at first. I kind of saw this big angry guy in the sky. But what Paul says the wrath of God is, is it's kind of this removal of a hand of grace and mercy and it allows people to continue in their sin. And so what Paul says the wrath of God is, it's actually giving people over to their sin. Sin is its own punishment. Like the wrath of God is like sin. Like, okay, you want this, you can have it. That's God's wrath. Like, you want life without me? You can have it. Like, these, like, and it's really cool because the argument that Paul keeps on making is we eventually get to chapter 6 and he says, the wages of sin is death. Which is kind of a famous verse, but it's like, imagine you go out to labor for someone for the day. Like, my good friend Jordy, um, who led us tonight, I got to labor for him for about two months and it was really fun. But I, I did work, right? And eventually, Jordy would pay me. <laughs> Maybe. So imagine I'm going to go labor for someone, and his name is Sin. And I'm going to work all day for Sin, and I'm going to move all this stuff, and it's going to be really hard. And boom, end of the day comes, and it's time to get my wages. What does he pay me? Death. The wages of sin is death. Kind of a cool picture. And, and so I think chapter 1, it's like, hey, the, like sin is its own wrath. Like, like, ugh, it's just, you want that. It's like you're, you're dealing with death, man. And so that's the argument that Paul starts to make. And he says that, and he, he kind of has these motifs and these illusions. It kind of sounds like he's even talking about Adam and Eve. It's like he's going all the way back to the beginning. And it's like, this is humanity's problem, that humanity has chosen to do this. And so chapter 2 rolls around, and, and the Jewish people in the church, because way back when, right, P Paul, he wrote a letter, and he sent it with one of his friends, and they walked like a million kilometers. And then they finally got there, and they're like, hey, guys, Paul has a message. Everyone come together. And they would sit us down, and they would read it publicly. 
Like, no one had their own individual letter of Romans. There was, like, one that they would read, and then they copied, and then everyone got some individual letters or whatever. But, but anyway, so, so Paul, he, he sends this letter, and they're reading it. And chapter 1 says, humanity's sin. And then chapter 2 rolls around, and he says, okay, Jews who have the law, do you think you're any better? Do you think because you have the law, you're, you're out of this sin issue? And it's like this big punch in the gut to like just kind of spiritual pride and like religious kind of pride. And it's like, hey, you who preach don't steal, do you steal? You who preach don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And the, the big argument of chapter 2 is the law cannot save you. Following the law, it can't save you. And chapter 3 rolls around, and so he says, okay, Gentiles are under the law, and Gentiles are under sin and death, and so are the Jews. And so chapter 3 comes, and we have this famous verse, and it says, for all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, right? And so chapter 3's argument is that everyone has sinned. And so you're like, all right, Paul, you've been talking about sin a bit. Is there any hope in this? And you see at the end of chapter 3, he says, all right, so this is 3, 19 and 20. He says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in the sight of God. Because through the law, you become conscious or aware of sin. So, boom, he drops this golden nugget. It's like, okay, what's the purpose of the law? The law is there to show sin. It's like, if Mike... My buddy tonight, if he actually did break his ankle, they'd bring him to the hospital, and what would they do? They'd take an x-ray of him, right? Can an x-ray heal him? It's like, no, it just shows his bone's broken. That alone can't heal him, but then they can take that, and then the doctor can prescribe knowing that, right? So the law, all these lists of do's and don'ts, it's never meant to be like your salvation. It's never meant to do that. It's meant to, like, you try it and you go, oh, whoops, I can't do this. And okay, cool. There's your x-ray of your, um, your condition. You're messed up. You need a savior. Who are you going to bring it to? And so that's what he says in chapter 3. And at the end, he says, but the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. And he says it's by faith. And so the big argument of chapter 4 is faith. And that how you get out of this mess is this concept called righteousness and justification. And Paul is convinced it's only by faith. It's not by the law. And he has this insane um, illustration of a a hero of the Bible, of this guy Abraham. And he kind of does a Bible commentary. He goes back to Genesis 15, and he looks at the story of Abraham, and he'll actually kind of interpret and walk us through these things. And chapter 4, you just get this crazy image of what faith looks like. And, man, I could be wrong about this, but I just the feeling I have is that I think our generation and the time, like, we don't really understand faith the way that majority of the church of Jesus Christ has. I think we kind of equivalent faith to like this wishy-washy hope. 
It's like, yeah, I hope that happens. Like, I say that all the time. Like, hey, are you going to do this? Yeah, I hope. But that doesn't really mean anything, right? But faith in the Bible's eyes and in the Bible time, it's so much deeper. It's something of substance. It's a conviction. So Hebrews 11 verse 1, it says, faith is the assurance. It's a knowing of things unseen, the conviction of things hoped for. And Abraham, he's this bag of bones, right? Bible's funny, okay? So here's a funny story. So he's very old. And Paul, he's like, he's dead. Like, he calls him really, really old. Basically a bag of bones. And he's like, he gets this promise when he's very, very old that he and his wife are going to conceive a child. That in their old age, they're going to conceive a child. Instead of scoffing and all that stuff, he receives that promise and something happens in his heart where he believes. So faith happens. And Paul says that faith moves him into righteousness. That, boom, it says in Genesis 15, 6, that he believed and it was counted to him or credited to him as righteousness. And he didn't consider the, the deadness of Sarah's womb. It's like, whoa, like, Paul, that's messed up. But it's like, yeah, he didn't even think about, like, how old they were. He's just like, God said it can happen, so it can and I think that's where Paul kind of sets the bar of what genuine faith is. Like, it's looking at something. It's like if this room was on fire, and you, we could all see it's on fire, and I'm like, it's not on fire. Like, we'd all be like, you're an idiot. But it seems like that's kind of what the Bible's talking about. It's you're looking at something, and you're just so convinced it's not the truth. And Paul says, that is what faith is like. And so kind of setting up this idea of faith, the last verse of chapter 4, he says that Jesus Christ, he was delivered up on the cross for our trespasses, for our sins. But he was raised for our justification. And then chapter 5 moves in, and it says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that God's not angry at you? If you have faith in him, the Bible says you have peace with God. Do you know that the disposition of God towards you is, is a peaceful one? Jesus, he actually kind of rebuked the people of his time. He says, man, do you not know it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? Do you know that God isn't mad at you? He's, he's actually peaceful. Hey, come on in. Come home. We have peace with God. That's how good the blood of Jesus is. And so he says, okay, having this peace, we get access to stand in him with faith and and chapter 5 is amazing. Um, we get this crazy verse. Verse 8 says, hey, this is how God demonstrates his love, right? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, okay, maybe someone would want to die for a good person. Maybe. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and he, and he came and he made us clean. And so that's, that's five, right? So this is a very long introduction. Um, sorry. But uh, it's, it's just so cool. Like Paul, he, he's moving his way through. It's like a, a play with different scenes and acts. Like, you have to go through it in a movement. And so the end of chapter 5, Paul, he makes this statement, and he, he does this big comparison between two people. It's between Adam and Jesus Christ. And in another book of the Bible, in, in one of the Corinthians, Paul says that Jesus is actually the last Adam. So what was Adam? Adam was the first human being, right? And so for, for Paul, Jesus is just so much more than I think we think he is. He's actually the first human of a new humanity. He came to bring, bring a newness, a new humanity. And so he compares Adam and Jesus. And, and, um, and Paul's kind of statement is Jesus' work on the cross trumps Adam's work at the tree. That, that the cross is actually greater than the fall. And just think about life for a second. Do you give more credit to Adam and Eve's fall than to Jesus' redemption? Man, sin, I hate that I'm falling. That's just the way it is, man. Like, that's just, ah, oh, dang it, Adam and Eve, why'd you have to sin? It's like, do we give more of that to Jesus' work of restoration. Like, be honest. Like, in your heart, in your faith, in your life, what is a greater consequence, the fall or the cross? And, and I think what Paul wants to do for the Romans, and I think what God wants for his people, is, is to have this kind of faith that truly says, man, the cross did something. And yes, heaven Eternity, it's real, it's going to happen, but it's not just all about heaven. So much is about here and now in this life, restoration, redemption, resurrection life. And so Paul is talking to human beings. And so Romans 6.1 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Like, oh, God's gracious, should I just keep sinning so grace gets bigger and bigger? And he's like, no, that's dumb, like, by no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? It's like if you're trapped in a jail for like 20 years and then you get let out, why would you ever walk back into it and slam the, shut, the door shut? I think that's what Paul is trying to say. Like, no, like if you've died to this, if you've truly like died, if you've seen that this is death, and you've tasted life again, why would you ever go back to it? And I love that kind of position of, of sin. He doesn't tolerate it. He doesn't normalize it. He says, this is wrong. This is, it's not normal. And so he, he takes us through saying like, man, Jesus leads us through because he's a better Adam. He's a better human. He, he's redoing things. And and the big argument of chapter 6 is that 
he actually freed us from sin. And he says it like five times in this chapter. You're dead to sin and alive in him. You're dead to sin and alive in him. What does that mean? And do you know that? Do I know that? (laughs) Yeah. Like theology, theology means the study of God. I love theology, but has theology become intimate? Is theology kind of just this out there set of concepts and ideas, or is it like a daily reality of like, wow, I'm resurrected. Like, this is fresh. This is real. This is, this is true. I think God wants us to be intimate with the truth, not just kind of have a list of doctrine or theology. And so he keeps going and he says, We were buried, therefore, with him in, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Book of Ecclesiastes. It's a great book, but it says there's nothing new under the sun. But Jesus comes along and he says, I've come to make all things new. See, Ecclesiastes, it's talking about the old covenant, this old way of life. And Jesus is like, you can't put old, like you can't put new wine in old wine skins. You can't sew an old patch onto to something new. Like, I've come to make all things new. And so my Holy Spirit, I couldn't put it in your old dead heart. So I killed that on the cross. I spoke some resurrection life just like he did with Lazarus, right? And he raised you up to put his precious spirit inside of us. Is that just an idea or is that real? Have you become intimate with your theology? The living word. And so Paul says, if we've, verse 5, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, the sinful nature, our old self, our old man, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. So Jesus, he lived, he died, right? Three days later, he resurrects. Is he ever going to die again? Are you ever going to die again? See, Paul, he's like Romans. Be so confident in your faith that in the same way that you know that Jesus is never going to die again, know that like you will never die again. Like he's introducing some really, really heavy things, but I think he wants us to be intimate to know these truths, not be far away. And so look at verse 11 with me. Paul says this, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive 
to God in Christ Jesus. If we were to read all of Paul's letters, you'd actually see kind of this formula and this format that pops up where Paul, he'll kind of talk about theology and then he'll go to application. So he'll talk a lot about like the heavenly places and what Christ did. And then kind of halfway through most of his books, he'll be like, all right, wives, submit to your husbands. Husband, love your wives. Like, have you ever noticed that? Like Paul, he'll talk about these kind of rich, deep things, and then he'll jump into kind of how to live and how to apply it. His books kind of move from theology to application. And something interesting about the book of Romans is there's 16 chapters. And from chapter 1 to chapter 12, there's under five commands. From chapter 12 to chapter 16, there's like hundreds. He's like, hey, serve each other this way, do that. And what's interesting is this is one of his commands. This is a command from Paul. He says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider, um, it, it's like if you were uh, a shopkeeper and you had to do inventory. You would go through and you would take a list of all these things and you'd write down item by item. You would be, you'd be reckoning, you'd be considering these things. And that's the same kind of word that Paul is using here. It's like, Hey, take an account of your life and consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. So what does that actually look like? Well, man, like Paul, from my reading of the Bible, Paul is actually convinced that, that we were sinners and then Christ came and actually did something to fix and change that. And it's not just about heaven one day. It's not just when we die or when Christ comes back. But from my reading, it's Paul thinks this crazy event happened where resurrection life actually busted in. And it's about believing that audacious truth of the gospel. Just like Abraham had to believe that audacious promise that he was going to have a child when his body didn't really work that well. It's looking at your life and being like, how could I be a saint? Obviously, I'm a sinner. Look what I did. I sinned there or there. But I think we are invited to stop viewing your life as a result of your works but view your life as a result of his work. To be like, wow, I'm a saint. That means holy one. I'm a holy one, not because of the things I do, but because of his blood that got on me to cleanse me. I don't think it's prideful at all to, to receive that and to believe it. I think it's instructed by the Bible to consider yourself a saint and to consider those around you in Christ as saints and not sinners. What's really interesting is if you read the New Testament, how often Paul will address people and he says, to the saints in Colossae or to the saints in Ephesus, to the holy ones. 
And what's really interesting, if you read the Bible with me, but he says it to the Corinthian church. It says to the saints in Corinth. And then you read on and it's like, these people are messed up. Some guy's sleeping with his stepmom. It's like, these people are getting drunk off communion wine. Like, like Corinthians is a messed up place. And Paul says, you guys are saints. So why are you acting like sinners? I think if we go all the way back to the beginning, go to Adam and Eve, right? Do you know that they actually didn't start in sin? Where did they start? Whose image were they made in? Is there any sin in God's image? Their, their image was actually beautiful and perfect, right? And then they became something. And so, whatever they became through the fall, what if Jesus actually wants to do something to undo that work and to redeem them? Like, do you know that that's where we're heading? Like, that's the end goal of your life is that God wants you to be the person that he meant you to be and not the person we fell into. Do you know that God wants the work of Jesus to actually be more glorified than the work of Adam of falling? That the work of Jesus on the cross is actually a greater work than Adam going to the tree to sin. Because at a tree, humanity abandoned God, but at a tree, humanity through Jesus, Jesus was a human, Jesus redeemed us at a tree, right? It's this beautiful, beautiful picture of God that the place where we abandoned him is the place where he's going to come and love us and redeem us. And I think that translates into your life. The places of hurt and pain and heartache is actually the place where God wants to come and redeem. Like, man, you were abused as a child. Like, God can heal that. And what if he wants to actually use you to heal kids going through that right now? Or people that have been through that? Like, that is the power of the gospel where you don't just tolerate things the way they are and say, oh, that's normal. But the gospel comes in and says, no. It gives you this righteous anger to say, no, I want something different. And I think that's the truth of God coming out and saying, no, this isn't how creation's meant to be. We want more. We want life. We want goodness to fill this earth like the prophets of old have talked about where God's glory just floods the earth. And so Paul, he, he uses this human analogy in chapter 6 of a slave. And a slave sounds really weird to us, but it's more of like an employer nowadays. And it's like, okay, you were working for sin and he stiffed you. Like, that was a bad boss. Like, you worked really, really hard, and he's like, here you go, bud. Here's death. And it's like, stop working for that guy. Work for a different guy. His name's righteousness. And so Paul, he, he actually says in verses 12 to 13, he says, hey, you are like an instrument. And behind me, right, are instruments. 
like a guitar, think about it. Like a, con- a guitar by itself, it, it, it will never make noise, right? It has to be brought to a musician. Not me. <laughs> it has to be brought to Jordy, right? It has to be brought to a musician. And so in the same way, he says, hey, you are an instrument of righteousness. You are much too good to give yourself to sin. Like, don't give yourself there. You're way too valuable. Give yourself unto God. And so what does that look like practically? How do we pray? When you pray, when I prayed, I used to spend so much time just confessing my sin and telling God how worthless and dirty I am and be like, I'm such a sinner, but you're amazing. But the fruit of that is just separation. I'm here, you're there. At least I know my place. But God's not okay with that. The gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. And so it's like, buddy, I love you. You were that, but I want to turn you into something new. I, want to, I don't want that to be the end of your story. I want that to be a part of it that moves on into better, better places, right? And, and that's why the gospel is good news. And man, wherever you are in life or in the world is there's good news that we can move past it into a place where, where we know life, where we experience the richness of how it was always meant to be. And I think Paul, he, he shows us that in verse 4, and he sums it all up in this term called the newness of life. That hey, he died to, to bring us to the newness of life. So I'll finish with this, but look at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Jesus is never going to die again. That was a one-time thing. He did it well the first time. He doesn't have to come back and refix something. It's done. It's finished. He's never going to die again. And he invites us into that unstoppable life where death doesn't get any say, where life gets the final word. And so David in the Psalms, there's this real famous psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Right? And then he keeps going. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. What do you give more credit to in life? Are you looking at the shadow of the valley? Like, oh, this is so hard. Because in Psalms it says we walk through there, but in Romans it says we walk in the newness of life. So are you more aware that you're walking through the, the valley of the shadow of death? Or are you more aware that you're actually walking in the newness of life? That's a gift of being in the new covenant in the New Testament is we get to move on into the newness of life where even our valleys, we get to so enjoy God that we get to say, this is newness of life that I'm walking in. What do you glorify in your life? Glorify means to shine light upon. 
What are you exposing most in your life? The works of Adam or the works of Jesus? What has a greater consequence, the fall or the resurrection? See, I used to think that sanctification in this life as a Christian was actually a daily um, walk of overcoming sin and beating sin. And, and I just viewed it all as, I need to beat my sin, beat my sin. I think it's so much more. I think he wants us to actually be done with sin. And he actually wants to unpack what he resurrected at the empty tomb. What died on the cross, let it stay dead, man. But what came out of the tomb, let it walk in the newness of life. My friend, she, uh, she gave me her, her car keys for a week. Um, I was in the Sunshine Coast, and my friends were flying into Brisbane. And so it's about an hour drive. And for about a week, I had to do this drive over and over again. And thankfully, I had a car, but it was kind of getting old. And, and I was driving. And about three-fourths through the week, I realized, man, this car has cruise control. And it made the the drive so much more easy. It's like, cruise control, save my ankle. And I was just thinking about that. And I want to ask you guys, when did I have cruise control? I had it the moment she gave me the keys, right? When she gave me the keys, I had the, the whole car. I had the fullness of the car. I just didn't know it yet. And I think our life with God is like that where he's actually given you the fullness of a new life. He's resurrected you. But you get to walk and find out, what does that new life look like? And not only is it a new life, he's given you a new friend called the Holy Spirit. That, man, we've been given the fullness of God. Do you know that you're a temple of God? Like, this building, it's great, but it's not the temple of God. You are, if you believe in him. And so, I just see that as sanctification now, is that it's, it's not so much about overcoming sin, but this life of being Christian is actually unpacking what he resurrected. And yes, there's growth. Yes, there's, wow, I want to stop doing this. But it's, it's crazy how different that change is, because it's like, wow, I can overcome this. Because it's not like this anchor weighing me down. He took that away at the cross. And now I'm in this newness of life where I get to learn by him and walk. So man, there's a lot of things that I brought up. And, and hopefully you're not confused. I see some confused faces. and Just keep reading Romans. <laughs> and you get to Romans 7 and you're like, what the heck, this guy? But keep reading to 8 and then 9 and 10 all the way to 16. And it's a good book because it's talking about a good news, the gospel. And it's a good pleasure to get a share. Um, but yeah, I really, really hope that something spoke to you guys. But if you want, would you hold your hands out like this? Just not that you want to receive from me, but just to say to God, I need from you. Father, thanks for this opportunity and thanks for your love. Um, God, I pray that by your spirit that you would be our teacher like Jesus you promised and that Holy Spirit, you would come and lead us into all truth about 
what really happened at the cross and just how amazing it is. I failed to unpack it, um, but I trust that you, Holy Spirit, can. And I pray that you would um, just come over this next week and maybe get us interested to read Romans or to just ponder on these things. But God, what does it mean to walk in the newness of life? And would you come and give that revelation to us? Would we understand that we get to walk in the newness of life and that there's a great gift in every breath and every day in this newness of life? So bless these guys in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.